There's a line in Billings' play, The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, in which the bewildered hero says, <clears throat> damned if I don't sometimes think it's easier to pioneer a country than to settle down in it. November 20th, 1958. We're a bit late for a speech being made by William S. Paley. He's the head of CBS. Mr. Paley is receiving a citation for his contributions in the world of media, specifically in the field of programming. Let's listen in. In the now long ago days when I was a broadcast pioneer, there wasn't anything else to do. Our top management was also our bottom management. And there were few distinctions to be made between policy and operations. It was one ball of string and a pretty tangled ball of that. In 1927, I was a vice president in my family's... During the Great Depression, Paley put together the most complete experimental programming schedule on network radio. One of CBS's most popular shows was the Lux Radio Theater, sponsored by Lux Soaps. It had been lured from NBC in 1935, and it occupied a Monday at 9 p.m. time slot for nearly two decades. By 1936, CBS had expanded into their Columbia Square complex in Hollywood. On June 1st of that year, the Lux Radio Theater moved their productions there and brought in a new program host, Cecil B. DeMille. Paley had succeeded in turning CBS into a network powerhouse, but he never stopped searching for a good idea. For example, the Lux Radio Theater took eight weeks off each summer. In its absence, there was a summer need to create new programming to keep the fickle American audience tuning their dials to CBS. Paley wanted to attract an audience, potential sponsors, and introduce the world to new writers, producers, actors, and directors, all in one shot. In 1940, he and his team at CBS came up with a summer replacement series that would help create new stars and help change the face of the Columbia Broadcasting System in the 1940s. They called it Forecast. We all thought it over carefully and decided the appropriate length for my leave of absence. I was to be gone three months. By the end of three months, it had become apparent this was not quite a long enough time in which to accomplish the task. Not only that, I had discovered that the company interested me not only as an investment, but as a career. When I finally became convinced of this, I burned my bridges behind me, resigned from the Congress Cigar Company, and took up as a full-time job the strange and mysterious work called broadcasting. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 80. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we'll examine a show called Forecast, which ran for two summer seasons in 1940 and 41, and ushered in an era of pilots for public consumption. The show gave rise to Suspense, Duffy's Tavern, and eventually Hopalong Cassidy. It featured stars like Marlene Dietrich, Kay Thompson, Margaret Sullivan, and Burgess Meredith. It gave huge opportunities to writers and directors like Norman Corwin, Helen Deutsch, and Bill Spear. And it gave early jobs to actors like Danny Kaye, Gerald Moore, Elliot Lewis, Byron Kane, Lorene Tuttle, Paula Winslow, Joseph Kearns, and Arthur Q. Bryan. It was the brainchild of William S. Paley. Paley's CBS specialty was programming. Forecast came to the air at a time when radio was still young and very much the most popular medium for entertainment in America. It came to the air at a time just before World War II when the entire country knew that the upcoming future was all but inevitable. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, thank you. Welcome to the show. You can find the show 
on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on Radio Public, on Podbean, on Google Play, on just about every other place you can listen to a podcast, and on thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme is My Blue Heaven by Glenn Miller and his orchestra. This song was a huge hit in the early 1940s, and it's as timeless today as it was then. If you've been enjoying Breaking Walls, especially on iTunes, scroll down and give us a quick rating. It'll really help more people discover the show and help people discover an era of American entertainment that's been largely forgotten over the last 60 years. And hey, if you enjoy audio drama, check out the first two chapters of Man Named Marlowe, an original audio drama featuring Raymond Chandler's famous detective, Philip Marlowe, available in the same feed as Breaking Walls. You can also support both shows and unlock juicy bonus content and all other fun extras at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. And to keep easily abreast with the show, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group or follow the show on Instagram and on Twitter. Now, to all our listeners, wherever you may be, our sponsors, the makers of Lux Flakes and Lux Toilet Soap, join me in wishing you a happy summer. And until September 9th, this is Cecil B. DeMille saying good night and goodbye to you from Hollywood. If I had learned anything about programming and personalities on the air by the 1930s, I think it was that you had to pull things in out of the blue sky. In other words, to hope and expect to find something somewhere without having it introduced to you formally. In the hour just ahead, the Columbia Broadcasting System will present from New York and from Hollywood... The first and second in a series of 14 new programs entitled Forecast. Forecast, an adventure in radio futures, bringing you 14 first night performances, seven from New York, seven from Hollywood. Each performance the first of a projected series. Forecast, an adventure in novelty, offering Columbia's answer to the ever-present American demand for something new in radio. Forecast, an adventure for listeners, presenting a star-spangled summer full of entertainment, each broadcast marked for future reference. The Lux Radio Theater was an hour-long production which ran Monday evenings from 9 to 10 p.m. When Forecast premiered in its time slot on July 15, 1940, it did so with two half-hour productions, the first from New York and the second from Hollywood. The idea was simple, 14 audition programs over the course of eight weeks. Two weeks would feature a single hour-long production, one from each coast, and CBS announcers invited listeners to write to CBS to let them know how they felt about each program. The most popular shows would be earmarked for future production. Forecast number one was called The Battle of Music. The show pitted a swing band against the classical orchestra in a battle of the musicians. It's absurd, but there it is. Some of you like the music of the immortal composers, Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, Mozart, and all their golden company. Some of you like swing or jazz or whatever name you care to give it. Well, who's right? Swing or symphony, classics or jazz? 
Uh, we don't know, but we're going to have considerable fun trying to find out here tonight. You see, we're uniquely equipped for research along those lines, thanks to the versatility of Raymond Page, whose successes range from the Hollywood Hotel to the Hollywood Bowl. Mr. Page has two complete orchestras assembled on the stage. On my left, a swing band. On my right, a full symphony orchestra. And when the two get together... you can see that Raymond's ready for any emergency. Now, band shows had been as old as radio programming itself, but a band competition show was a relatively new idea. So why would CBS champion such a pilot? General Mills, makers of kicks, invite you to beat the band. If you can. Six months earlier, NBC had premiered a band competition show of its own called Beat the Band. The show ran Sundays at 6.30 p.m., serving as a lead-in to the Jack Benny program and was sponsored by Kick Serial. It was hosted by comedian Gary Moore and featured Ted Weems' 14-piece orchestra with vocals by Parker Gibbs, Marvel Maxwell, and the soon-to-be American sensation Perry Como. CBS was searching for its own alternative. They added comedic flavorings in the form of arguments between the MCs for the swing and classical bands who performed the show in front of a live audience. Raymond, that was terrific. Doc, I think you're licked. I'm not licked. The only one you've smeared is Beethoven, and he's great enough to stand it. Why, I leave it up to anyone here. You're right, Mr. Spaulding. Absolutely, definitely correct. Swing is an abomination. Well, that's a fine thing to say. Don't you give in, The bottom half of the hour from Hollywood featured a program called The American Theater, starring husband and wife duo Frederick March and Florence Eldridge in The Gentleman from Indiana. March had once won an Academy Award as the star of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931. Florence Eldridge, who had grown up in Brooklyn, made her Broadway debut in 1918 and in the 1930s starred as Fantine in Les Miserables and Queen Elizabeth I in Mary of Scotland. The Gentleman from Indiana told a story from the life of American newspaperman turned congressman John Harkless and was adapted for radio by John Houseman, who recently wrapped up his radio partnership with Orson Welles on the Campbell Playhouse. Ladies and gentlemen, the series of broadcasts of which tonight's program is intended as an example proposes to bring to the air the great novels, short stories, and plays of American life. The best work of the finest American writers who have taken America itself for their theme. In these doubt-ridden, feverish days, Americans are turning more and more, we believe, to an examination of their past, to find strength and courage for the future. And they are finding in that past new, rich sources of drama and romance. And so do the common men and women who built freedom here in this country. We who now must defend that freedom dedicate the American theater. Although the program wasn't picked up, theater programs on radio using big stars were common, with Orson Welles' departure from the Campbell Playhouse to direct and star in Citizen Kane, CBS and Campbell Soups were unsure if the program would continue. It did for one final season, returning Friday, November 29, 1940, with John Houseman remaining as producer. 
Major stage and film stars would appear in guest roles, including Humphrey Bogart, Jeanette MacDonald, and Frederick March. I grew up in the tradition of Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, H. Ryder Haggard, if you will, and, and all of the romantic, how will it come out, can she get away by midnight, people, rather than the clanking chains of the purely ghost story. Not that suspense doesn't sometimes have an element of horror, or that horror doesn't have an element of suspense, but I did not specialize in the clanking chains. The following week, New York premiered a comedy musical called When You Were 21, starring a not-much-older Danny Kaye. Kaye had recently appeared on Broadway and was then the featured attraction at the New York nightclub La Martinique, located at 57 West 57th Street. It was, however, the show at the bottom half of the hour from Hollywood that later garnered the attention. At 9.30, director Alfred Hitchcock teamed up with star Herbert Marshall for an adaptation of the English novel The Lodger, about a Whitechapel London family that takes in a boarder soon suspected to be Jack the Ripper. They called this episode Suspense. What are we going to do? Tell me that. We'll get along here. Something will turn up. Oh, and... we haven't had a lodger for months. Nobody even comes to look at the room anymore. Yes, but things will work out a little bit. Oh, they bit. ain't never going to work out. Soon we won't even have a roof over our heads. And... Oh. oh, I'm sorry, Robbie. I, I didn't mean to take on this. Oh, I know, dear. I know. It's all right. Oh, I, I didn't think it. It's just that I, I've been so worried. Well, don't you go worrying another second, old girl. Why, first thing you know, you won't be pretty anymore. You'll have your face all wrinkled. Now, and you'll... See now come on, now, let's see a smile. Come on, just have one oh, smile. Leave me me just one I smile like you used to, eh? Oh, <laughs> 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 Who do you suppose that could be? Not the late visitors, I... Bunting. Do you think it should be somebody looking for rooms? Well, it might be. Want me to go to the door? No, I'll go. Oh. You just stay here. Yes, all right. Now, be sure you get a good look at the reason before you let them in, dear. Oh, I'm coming. Oh, I do hope it's... <clears throat> yes, sir? Is it not true that you let lodgings? Yes, sir. Uh, won't you come in, sir? Thank you. Uh, could I, uh, could I take your keep, sir? There's no need. Now, I, um, uh, I'm looking for a quiet room. It must be quiet. Oh, we have that, sir. Above all, our, our house is quiet. Uh, you bag, dummy, I take it. No, I'll hold it. Co-starring in this episode with Herbert Marshall were Edmund Gwynn, Noreen Gamel, Joseph Kearns, and Laureen Tuttle. The genius of the episode was that the play ended on the climax, not after, without ever revealing if the lodger was actually Jack the Ripper. As they're in the old neighborhood, her bed increased. With each moving footstep, the grip of terror grew tighter, tighter about her. She moved faster, faster. If only she were in time. She was two streets away from the house. Then one. Then... Then she saw Bunting. Sharply, like the thrust of a knife, she realized what this meant. Daisy was left alone with the lodger. Bunting! Bunting! Yes, Helen, oh, Bunting, tell me, Bunting. Where's Daisy? Where is she? I say, where? Why, at home. Oh, listen to me. Try to understand. Sleuth is the Avenger. What are you saying? Oh, Lodger, he's the Avenger, Bunting. Oh, but there's no time for that. Daisy's in danger. Hurry! Hurry! Yes. Daisy! Daisy! 
Jeez, she's not here. What about the dining room? Look, she's not there. She's not downstairs. Then there's just his room. Go on. Open the door. What's the idea, Hitch? I have a few more lines to do. As Mr. Marshall, the narrator, you have. Not as Mr. Sleuth, the lodger. Hitch, you can't stop the play right here. It isn't fair, you know. Why isn't it, Bob? What more is there to say? Mr. Hitchcock, won't people want to know what Bunting and me found in the room? All right, Ellen. What precisely did you find? Well, uh, nothing, sir. There. You see? Nothing. No lodger, no Bible. And that block dresser drawer. What about that? We unlocked it, sir. And what was in it? Nothing, sir. You are certain, Mrs. Bunting? Oh, oh, you gave me quite a turn, Mr. Sleuth. I mean, Mr. Marshall. Yes, sir, I'm sure, sir. There was nothing. Well, begging your pardon, Mr. Hitchcock, but don't you think we'd better just mention about Daisy? I don't know, Bunting. What do you think we ought to say? The series' original intention was to give Alfred Hitchcock a vehicle to present Mystery Anthology. Hitchcock had directed a silent film of the same name called The Lodger, back in 1926, and he had only arrived in America the previous year. There is even some mystery as to whether that is Hitchcock's voice on this program, or if it is Joseph Kearns doing an impression of Hitchcock. Either way, the episode was a success. While Orson Welles had scared the country with his adaptation of Dracula in The War of the Worlds, a high-budget suspense show had yet to premiere. Less than two years later, on Wednesday, June 17, 1942, at 9.30 p.m., suspense premiered with a famous mystery by John Dixon Carr called the Burning Court. The Columbia Network takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Suspense. Stories from the world's great literature of pure excitement. A new series frankly dedicated to your horrification and entertainment. Week by week, from the pick of new material, from the pages of best-selling novels, from the theater of Broadway and London, and the sound stages of Hollywood, will parade the most remarkable figures ever known. CBS gives you suspense. The first six productions were under the supervision of Charles Vanda, who was the executive producer on Forecast. By late July, the series was turned over to William Spear. Well, Bill, when did uh, Suspense go on the air, and were you involved with it from the very first? I was not involved from the very first. The show was conceived by Charles Vanda, V-A-N-D-A, a a very wonderful producer and and great old friend, in California. And it came about in uh, 1940 as part of a series called Forecast, which CBS put on in the summer as a replacement for the Lux Radio Theater, which used to play 46 uh, weeks a year, but took an eight-week hiatus. And up until then, they had just filled the show with anything that the network could find, but we came up with the idea of using that eight weeks as a a testing ground, a a pilot, it would be called today, a ground, 
for new shows, one of which was Suspense, another was Duffy's Tavern, and uh, many shows, several shows were sold and, and went on into uh, getting well-known in, in radio. Some others fell by the wayside. Suspense is produced and directed by William Spear. John Deeds And there again, the one and only Lud Gluskin, who conducted and his wonderful composers, Lucian Morawieck and Bernard Herrmann and others, were greatly responsible for the impact of those shows, creating of a, of a spell of loneliness or of awe or of majesty or of what, because the narrative principle was so much in use in a show like Suspense. The theme was written by Bernard Herrmann, who uh, was a wonderful composer and a great, great guy, and the husband, at the time anyway, of Lucille Fletcher, who wrote Sorry, Wrong Number and... Uh, many of the shows that we did that were uh, superior, superior things. No, that was part of Charlie Vander's original show, too. I invented the phrase, tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Suspense would go on to have a 20-year run as radio's outstanding theater of thrills. It catapulted William Spear to radio fame. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? What gazpacho is supposed to be served cold? Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. It's a funny thing when you're talking about the old shows in the old days. When KHJ was at 7th and Bixel, my first job was down there. I was still in school at City College. I was in a radio class because I had been invited, everybody in the campus was invited to audition for a new class they were going to give in radio acting. And I had done some acting as a youngster in Mount Vernon, New York, where I was raised. So when I came out here to go to school, hoping to study law, I got involved in this audition, got in the class, but I was working in the music, I was in the music department and studying pre-law, and there was a guest speaker at the class one day, and he invited everybody in the radio class to come down to KHJ and audition for a commercial job. And I wasn't there. I missed it. His name was True Boardman. So I called True on the phone, and I introduced myself, and he said, well, you shouldn't miss the audition. Come on down. We'll audition you. And I went down the next day. He gave me a job on a, I think it was the life of Simon Bolivar. I think I had three lines, but the biggest thing I had to do was they had a rack for those kind of chairs. In the earthquake sequence, I was to shake the rack as hard as I could and yell, earthquake, earthquake, which I did, and it was on coast to coast, and I got a letter from my mother and dad in Mount Vernon, New York. <laughs> they enjoyed it very much. It's... And then I started working in fairly regularly, and, uh, and here I am. 
The next week on July 29th, Hollywood opened the 9 p.m. portion of the broadcast with a play called Angel, starring the sultry Loretta Young. In Angel, she played an 18-year-old woman who helps organize her town after a flood, eventually becoming the champion member of the Red Cross. Miss Young was known for her roles featuring empowered women who bucked the man's world trend. Just a week prior, her latest romantic comedy, The Doctor Takes a Wife, in which she starred as a female author of women's issues, opened to popular reviews. Angel also introduced the American listening audience to a 22-year-old Elliot Lewis, who would go on to have an incredibly successful career as a writer, producer, actor, and director for CBS. What is it, Doctor? Bad luck, that's what it is. A baby. A baby? Bad luck? Why did she have to pick now? I'll have to stay here for the delivery while other families upriver are without food or medicine. But they won't be. I suppose you think you can run that boat alone. No, Doctor, but you can. Look, Miss Carter, you don't understand. The baby oh, is... Oh, I understand ex- perfectly. I'll stay with Mrs. Norbach. I've helped deliver babies before. I guess this time I can manage alone. You're not afraid? Supposing I am. What difference would it make? You go ahead, Doctor. I'll be all right. You can stop here for me on your way back. I'll do that. Oh, and Ellen. Yes? Good luck. Thank you, Doctor. It was, however, once again, the show at the bottom half of the hour, this time from New York, that got the big raves. When I first joined CBS, actually, working the early morning shift, I opened up the network at 6 o'clock in the morning, but believe it or not, I never even knew how to make a station break when I got <laughs> to the network, because all I did was do football games in college. Other fellows made the station breaks, and I didn't know anything at all about radio and Later on, they switched to sober, and um, Bert and I primarily handled the dance band shows, which was your 11 to 1 prime time, let us say. That's right. Instead of like the Tonight Show, you did dance bands in New York. Sometimes they would switch out to Chicago or San Francisco or Los Angeles, but primarily most of your great bands were playing in and around New York City. We used to get a kick out of alternating doing Benny Goodman and Tommy Dorsey. Glenn Miller. Hello, Duffy's Tavern, where do you leave meat to eat? Special today, pig's pickle feet. Archie speaking, Duffy ain't here. Oh, hello, Duffy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, must be three or four customers here already. You hear that, Duffy? You're in business again. Uh, listen, Duffy, you picked out a very bad time to call up. Yeah, we're just gonna go on the air for a broadcast. Now, wait a minute, Duffy, don't get all excited, it ain't costing a cent. No, the network's doing it for prestige. Well, now, now, Duffy, I can't brandy words with you now. We're just going on the air, I'm telling you. Goodbye, Duffy, I'll see you later. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mel Allen. Forecast invites you to join us for a decidedly informal evening at Duffy's Tavern, where anyone under the sun is likely to drop in any time to talk things over with Archie. Almost anyone may drop in tonight. Now, people we're sure will be around, however, are Gertrude Neeson, Colonel Stupnagel, Larry Adler, and John Kirby's orchestra. And now I turn you over to that past master of ceremonies, Archie. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is the voice of Duffy's Tavern speaking, uh, formerly Duffy's Bar and Grill, and still owned by the same proprietorship. 
And we take great pride in presenting them great musicians, John Kirby and his high schoolians. They offered their own version of Royal Garden Blues. Uh, you will note that in the second chorus, the piccolo player hits a note so high that it can only be heard by a dog. Uh, Mr. Kirby. <laughs> The most immediately successful of all the forecast pilots was Duffy's Tavern, a bar-centered situation comedy written by and starring Ed Garner as Archie. Duffy's Tavern was allegedly located in downtown Manhattan, on Doyd Avenue and 20 Doyd Street, the eyesore of the east side, where the elite meet to eat. The proprietor, Duffy, never made an appearance, but his disagreeable nature was a constant source of anxiety for Archie, thanks to his frequent telephone calls. Ed Garner was born... Eddie Poppenberg in Astoria, Queens on July 29, 1905. If you notice his accent, it's a now dead New York accent, not a Brooklyn accent. In 1941, he explained to Radio Life that there's as much difference between New Yorkese and Brooklynese English as there is between Oxford and Choctaw. In 1939, Gardner was directing a short-lived series for CBS called This Is New York, when a character who could speak with a true New York accent was needed. Gardner stepped onto the soundstage to demonstrate how to read the lines and a new character, Archie, was born. Duffy's Tavern worked perfectly for radio. Only in this medium could a character like Duffy, who never once made an appearance, be so completely established just by Archie's retorts on the telephone. The pilot was so popular that Schick Razors picked it up, and Duffy's Tavern premiered for CBS on Sunday, March 1st, 1941 at 8.30 p.m. The series featured many high-profile guest stars, including Fred Allen, Lucille Ball, Bing Crosby, Susan Hayward, Bob Hope, Lena Horne, Boris Karloff, Veronica Lake, Peter Lorre, Gene Tierney, and Shelley Winters. Hello, Duffy's Tavern, where the elite meet to eat the special today, Pig's Pickle Feet. Oh, hello, boss. Hey, how'd you like Kirby's band? They what? Duffy, they do not. Well, I see what you mean mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. What is it, Archie? It's uh, Duffy, Mr. Kirby He says he thinks your band is great All right, Duffy, I know I can't tell a guy that, though You don't understand artists, Duffy You know, they're much more insensible than you and me You gotta tolerate them Ah, but Duffy, you haven't liked nothing since Chauncey all cut cracked up on Mother McCree. <laughs> You're living in a graveyard full of Irish tennis. Wait a minute, Duffy. Uh, <clears throat> Gertrude Nation, uh, the no floor shell just walked in. <laughs> what? Uh, all right, I'll tell her. I'll speak to you later. Uh, good evening, Miss Nason. Hi, Archie. Uh, say, Miss Nason, I hate to, uh, you know, I hate to bury sleeping dogs, but Duffy has been complaining about you. Oh, what's old Novocaine brain squawking about now? Well, he claims you insulted his best customer, Mr. Feldever K. Beldorf. Was you out to dinner with Beldorf last night? Yes, and I'll never go out with that son again. I would like to think that things haven't changed since I was given visitation rights to the pulpit. But in a sense, they have worsened. The electorate in many countries, particularly in America, has been dumbed down by the worst elements of radio and television, where a single opinion spouter, an oracle, is on the air speaking daily to millions of people and poisoning their minds. I think that in the very nature of 
television as compared to radio, there are great discrepancies. For example, there was no term in radio that is equivalent to couch potato or boob tube because the radio listener had to collaborate with what he was hearing as one collaborates with the author of a book when you're reading the book. You don't have any visual distractions. The set design is in your head. You cast the characters. You might be listening to an opera, let's say Carmen, the antagonist and protagonist, at the same time being a dangerously beautiful woman who dances a fiery Spanish dance with a rose in her teeth. But in radio, she can weigh 500 pounds. Your image of her is that of a dangerously beautiful woman. Actually, the ear is the organ through which we perceive the subtlest of the arts, which is music. And when you think of the great giants of musical history, Beethoven, Brahms, Bach, Tchaikovsky, all of those masters, there's not a visual frame in any of their hours of work. There's greatness. It's the majesty, which is a mysterious medium. I think that the literalness of television has been damaging. In that five o'clock shadow on a candidate can lose an election, as it did with Nixon on his first debate with Kennedy. Episode 11 of Forecast, broadcast from Hollywood on August 19, 1940, was called Double Feature. Two plays split the half hour. The first one was a lighthearted sequel to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, called Ever After, written by Keith Fowler. But darling, there's one thing we've forgotten. If you go away, who'll take care of the kingdom? Oh, that's easy. I'll appoint Grumpy and Doc and the rest of the dwarfs to act for me. Grumpy can be the executioner. He'll like that, eh, Grumpy? I don't give a hang. And Doc can be Speaker of the Spouse. I mean, Speaker of the House. That's wonderful. And Sleepy can be First Lord of the Bedchamber. And Happy can be the Court Jester. And Sneezy can be the Court Physician. And Bashful can wait on the ladies-in-waiting. But Dopey... What can poor Dopey do? Mm, that is a problem, my dear. I have it. Dopey can be the prince. The second, to Tim at 20, was an incredibly powerful spoken account of a letter being written by a man at war just before battle, addressed to his son 15 years in the future. It starred Charles Lawton and was written by a 30-year-old Norman Corwin. It is the hour before dawn in the barracks of an RAF squadron on the northeast coast of England. Gunner Marshall, who is leaving at dawn on a mission from which there can be no return, is writing a letter. Dear Tim, tomorrow I'm leaving here to do some special work. It will be gone quite some time. So I decided I would write to you before I lose track of what it was I've been wanting to tell you. First, let me wish you a very happy 20th birthday. In doing so, I'm a little matter of 15 years ahead of myself, for at this writing, unless I've counted wrong, you are five years and three weeks old. You mustn't criticize your mother for being late with the mails because it's not her fault. 
I made a special point of asking her not to deliver this letter to you until you were 20. Because I wanted to talk to you man to man. Not as father to son. I didn't want your mind to be wandering off to cricket scores, the latest mystery mover, the, or the ice cream man, which is what usually happens when a father talks seriously to his boy. Tim, the fact of the matter is that you know more about the world at 20 than I've any way of knowing at twice your age. And you ought to be telling me things, not I, you. By the time you read this yellowing page... You will have a much better report on the longitude and latitude of civilization than anybody around here can give out today. Frankly, we fellows just don't know where we're going. You at least can see where we've been. Corwin had been at CBS for two years in August of 1940. Forecast helped open eyes and ears to his potential as a writer, producer, and director. He was a man who understood that, by August of 1940, most of the world was at war, and it wouldn't be long before America had no choice but to enter the conflict. Here was also a man whose writing always combined a sense of a deeply progressive future with that of a nostalgic past. He intrinsically understood how people actually communicated with each other and how they aspired to. It was fitting that Lawton would be the man to star in this piece. He had been gassed and lost part of his leg in combat during World War I. Tim, I hope you men of the second half of this poor century have sense enough to develop a fuller appreciation of women. Not that your forefathers didn't love them, for they did. But our sex has done all the swaggering and made all the big decisions and pretty much taken over the running of the earth. And we haven't made out any too well, according to the tally sheets. Rather badly, in fact. Can you imagine the female of the species doing worse? Can you fancy a diplomacy of women trafficking in sons and husbands? Well, I can't, and I doubt if you can, because there must come a special understanding of the dignity of life to those who grow it in their vitals. There are several kinds of valor, Timothy, and the least is the kind that comes out of the hysteria of battle. Courage is not a stag affair, you know. While I'm on that subject, let me tell you another story about your mother. The week before you were born, I watched for signs of apprehension that had been warning of grave risks, and I was wondering whether she perhaps was afraid. I will give my love a heart. Ellen. Huh? Yes? You're all right, dear. Now, what makes you ask that? Is my singing so bad? No, 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 no. On the contrary, it's delightful. I just... Go on, darling. I'm feeling very well. Good. Uh, Is a... Not anything I can do for you, darling? Don't you want a hot water bottle or something? No, no. I'm all right. Well, if there is anything you want, I mean to say if anything bothers you... Nothing's bothering me, darling, but I know what's bothering you. What? You think I'm afraid, don't you? Don't be silly. You think I'm afraid something might happen. Please, Ellen. You see? You don't even want me to say it, do you? You're a typical nervous father. You know, the kind they draw in cartoons when the door opens and the nurse sticks her head out and says... 
Were you expecting anybody? That's not very funny. No. No, it's a bit on the sad side, isn't it? Sad side? What? That fathers should be more nervous about children coming into the world than about the kind of world their children will live in once they're here. What have you been reading lately, darling? Newspapers. Oh. Listen, I'd like you to understand something. There's nothing unique about having a child. It's a simple, everyday business. Yes, of course. So don't sentimentalize about my being courageous. I'm no more courageous than 50 million Chinese peasant women and a lot better taken care of. Just the same, darling. It does call for a little nerve, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Risks in everything, if you want to look at it that way. Crossing a street calls for nerve. From the standpoint of accident figures... I still say it takes a good deal of grit to go through what you're going through. Oh, yes, yes. Women are brave, all right. But we're brave individually. You men tramp up and down in hordes and sing marching songs. But there's no band playing when a woman has a baby. That's true enough. Sometimes I think it's just too bad that all the mothers in the world don't get together and do something with the sum total of their pain... Like getting hold of their menfolk and saying, How dare you destroy our work? Well, of course. And the, the, the wicked thing about it is that there are so many good people in this world. The vast majority of all populations are decent, and yet things can get into a frightful mess for everybody. Stupid, isn't it? Yes, I, I, I see what you mean, darling. I will give my love. I see what you mean, dear. It's, uh, yes, well. I will give my love In the summer of 1940, it was August 19, 1940, I was staying with my mother and my aunt in Hollywood, near Central Avenue. My mother went to visit somebody at the beach, and I decided to go to the opening of a market on Gordon Street. And in those days, when a market opened, there were Klieg lights and movie stars and big shows, and I went to see the fun. I wanted to see the celebrities. So I went up there. And nothing much was happening. There weren't many celebrities. And I got a little bored, and I walked down Sunset Boulevard toward Columbia Square. That's at Gower and Sunset. And as I was walking down the street, I see this little elderly lady, a character actress named Jane Morgan. Wonderful actress. And I saw her coming down the street, and I realized that at 10 o'clock, this is very strange for any actor or actress to be coming into a radio studio. It isn't strange at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock when you start your rehearsals. But 10 o'clock was rather different, so I was curious. She went in, I followed her into the inner lobby, which there is no longer at Columbia Square, it's all cemented in, it's different. And she went into the left, into the inner lobby, and sat down, and where I saw people, I knew who they were, they didn't know me, but I knew that was Bob Burleson, and that was Jerry Hausner, and that was a sitting there with scripts in their hands, and I knew immediately what that was. They were sitting with scripts in their laps, in the lobby. It was an audition. So I went in and sat down. A few minutes later, a man comes out who is an assistant radio director named Sterling Tracy. 
He had known my face from hanging around CBS all the time, from becoming sort of an accoutrement there. He would hand me tickets like in the Men in the Street shows. Here, you had tickets and you hand them to the people who said, yes, my name is John Smith and I like so-and-so. And there I was, I was a part of radio even in those days. Just a kid. So he knew the face. He didn't even remember my name. But I had put my name in a radio directory. Uh, it was, uh, I think, Lou Loria in those days put out a radio direct. I put my face in my picture and all the credits I had done in New York, you know. <laughs> all these. So Tracy comes out of the inner lobby and he walks up and he looks at me and I look at him and I says, you know, Trace, uh, I says, I wasn't called for this part. He says, yeah, I know. He says, I didn't know you were an actor. But he says, I, I, yeah, I do remember. I saw your picture in that book, but I, I didn't uh, register. He says, uh, you want to take a crack at this Charlie part? He says, yeah. He says, okay, I'll go back and I'll get to the script. Now he brings back the script and I see the script. I think I registered this thing. It was a show called Forecast. The story was of Bethel Meriday. The part was Charlie Hatch, which he told me Charlie Hatch is page 18. And I read it over and it's Charlie and the girlfriend Bethel. The week after Double Feature, on August 26, 1940, Norman Corwin directed a pilot called Bethel Meriday based on the 1940 novel written by Sinclair Lewis. It was adapted for Forecast by Helen Deutsch. The radio play starred Howard De Silva as Mr. Keezer, Margaret Sullivan as Bethel, and a debuting 17-year-old Byron Kane as Charlie Hatch. My name is Keezer. Doc Keezer, they call me, though I'm no doctor. These radio people here have asked me to tell you the story of Bethel Meredith, but I, I don't rightly know where to begin. Bethel's a star now, and let me add, a fine actress, which isn't always the same thing. Ask anybody today who the leading young stage actresses are. The answer is Helen Hayes, Catherine Cornell, and Bethel Meredith. Exactly where the whole thing started is hard to say. Maybe long before Bethel was born in the blood of some Meredith ancestor. Maybe it began in Mr. Fossfinder's drugstore back in 1931, when Bethel was still in high school. What'll it be, girls? Jumbo moth milk. Uh, what's yours, Princess? Hey, what are you having, beautiful? Bethel, wake up! What are you going to have? What? Oh, uh, I don't care anything. When she's in this mood, you can give her a kerosene Ipecac someday, and she won't know the difference. Bethel! Oh, I'll, uh, have a, a maple nut Sunday. Okay. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Bethel. Hello, Alma. Move over, Bethel. Sit down here, Charlie. We just saw the most wonderful move. It was called The Heart of an Understudy. <laughs> the understudy didn't have a friend in the world. She was an orphan, and Frank shot Tone. He kept carrying her suitcase. And then one night, the star of the play lay dying. And the understudy played the star's part. And then she married a banker's son. He was filthy with money. She just moved right off to Long Island. Well, she had to win over his mother first. Oh, the mother was awful. She was so refined. That dress she had on when she played the leading part must have cost $1,000. I didn't like it, though. Did you, Bethel? Did you, huh? Did you like that rhinestone dress? Bethel, I'm talking to you. Ah, oh, she's in one of a million-mile-away moods. You want to know something? What? I'm going to be a stage actress. Like that understudy in the picture. Look who's talking. You serious? I certainly am. Bethel, there aren't any stage actresses anymore. All that old-fashioned junk. Please. Uh, here's my 15 cents. I don't think I want any more of my ice cream. I'm going home, I think. So long. Did you ever? Now she's sore. No. No, she's not. Beth's never sore. She's just, uh... Excuse me, Alva. Guess I'll run along. Bye. 
Goodbye. I gotta get along. I walk in and I see this lady standing opposite the microphone. It was a, uh, a lady named Lucille Meredith. I knew immediately who she was. She was a very active radio actress from New York, and she's been out here. I knew all, but she had a very throaty voice, deeper than Lauren Bacall's. She was there standing opposite the microphone, and I walked up, and then I nodded. And I could think Tracy said, this is Byron Kane. And then he went into the control booth where there were about five or six people. And I said, okay, Trace, where do I start? It was a microphone just like this. And he said, well, I'm not conducting the audition. He says, Mr. Corwin is. It sort of rang a bell. I knew Corwin was a, yes, it was a director, radio director, big radio. And I said, how are you doing? He said, okay. He says, all right, just go ahead, Kane. And we start, Bethel and I, and Bethel wants to be an actress. She's in a small town. And I heard her boyfriend, Charlie Hatch, 17 years old, says, don't do it. Don't be an actress. It's full of pitfalls. You go to New York, it'll be terrible. And that was a scene. It ran about a page. Corwin pushes the talk back and says, that's it, Kane. He says, read page 22. So I went to 22. And away I went. I read, she read, I read. He pushes the talk back again and said, Kane, he said, that's very good. He says, tell me, what is your schedule the next three days? There must be something that gets you when you see it all coming together for the first time. Taking form like something hidden in a fog and then the mist clears and there it is. Now, how could you know that? Well, I must say... Oh, Joy, you startled me. Well, I must say I'm pretty startled myself. I thought you wanted to be alone. Uh, Mr. Keezer, may I present Charlie Hatch? He lives next door. Pleased to meet you. Uh, Here I am down at the Rex by myself because I'm good-natured and you said you wanted to be alone and... Charlie... You better learn now. If there's one thing a man cannot take, it's him being nice enough to leave a girl alone when she wants to be alone and then he finds her with another man. Please excuse me, Mr. Keezer. He's just a boy next door. She thinks she's Marlene Dietrich, but she's just a girl next door. Oh, it's getting late. I think I'd better be on my way. Uh, no, please don't go, Mr. Keezer. Charlie, I do not consider your behavior very attractive. Well, how do you think I feel about yours? This kind of goings-on may be all right for an actress and that kind of people, but it's not all right for you. Oh, I'm better getting late. I think I'd better be on my and way. And it's for you, whoever you are. I suppose she's been telling you she's going to be an actress. Yes, well, and I am, too. A thermos jug in a little flat and a husband who talks about coffee percolators. That's not what I want. It's just not good enough. I go on day after day in this little town with every day, just like the day before. Lamb chops tonight, the rib roast tomorrow night, and the laundry is ruining the sheets. Do I want to play bridge on Wednesday? Mary has a new recipe. The in-laws are coming to dinner, and tomorrow's another day and another day and another day. No! No, it's not for me. Oh, heck, Bethel. I know it all by heart, and it's not for me. So goodbye, Charlie Hatch. And anyway, those ice cream sodas are leaking all of your pants. Oh, who cares? Who cares? Goodbye anyway. Goodbye. But let me tell you this. You'll never find folks you can depend on like you can on your home folks. These Don Juans from New York, they'll use you and throw you away like a worn-out glove. Like a wilted flower. Goodbye. You know, there's something in what he says. There's something about settling down in a nice little home. No, that's not for me. Well, I guess you know what you want. But remember... There may be no money and no fame. Mr. Keezer, I don't want diamonds or my face on billboards of flattery or adventure, anything, but just a chance to act. I want to be an actress. I think you will be, Bethel Meredith. And that's how I first met Bethel Meredith. I was her first fan, I think. And I'm still a Meredith man. And I was there the night she went on a scared understudy to play Juliet, her first major role, on five hours' notice. I stood in the wings that night and prayed. 
That was all a lot later. Plenty happened before that. I'll be telling you about it. Through a series of serendipities, somebody at CBS heard me and thought uh, that I would be an interesting addition to their staff. They engaged me as a director, not knowing that I, my chief interest was writing. And so I parlayed those mm -hmm. talents and became uh, my own producer as well. And in very short time, I was able to latch on to some opportunities that found my programs getting attention in the national publications, Time and other magazines, and there I was on my way. When I went to CBS as a director, I began, for the first few months, I directed the work of other people. Mm -hmm. I did some adaptations, a very minor character, but I more or less learned the network console. Thanks in part to his work on Forecast, Norman Corwin's stock quickly rose through CBS. 1941 was one of the most important years in the history of the United States of America. In 1941, Norman Corwin was at the forefront of entertainment and information on the country's most powerful medium for communication. In May, he was given control of CBS's most prestigious experimental program, the Columbia Workshop. He wrote, produced, and directed 30-minute dramas 26 weeks in a row. These plays have come to be known as 26 by Corwin. They range from whimsy to romance to high drama to coming-of-age tales. On Corwin's final night controlling the workshop, November 9, 1941, he debuted a moving play entitled Psalm for a Dark Year. It was an observance of Thanksgiving in a troubled world. At the end of the psalm, Corwin addressed his fellow men and women of the United States, who all knew they were on the precipice of war. Sons of men, daughters of the mingled lovers of the many tribes who make us what we are, brothers, sisters by the millions, sitting with us at this table, encircled round us through the far, wide-spreading states. What year this is, we shall not soon forget. Remark it, each of you belonging to it. This year shall skulk among the blackest annals ever, pitied, wondered on, and sung about as long as our posterity looks back to see the how and why of what has gone before. None of us makes pretense to himself of tranquil temper. There are no barefoot pleasures in these hobnailed times. The world is burning. It is burning. Flame is never subtle in its ways. It has a pattern all can recognize. We smell the smoke and feel the scorching air and see the embers snatched up by the winds and blown this way and that. But we are thankful. Thankful in this graceless year for the strong joy of the challenge, for defiance in the nostril and the weapon in the hand. Shall we despair who suckled freedom on the brew of vintages of wrath? Shall we be thankless for the passions stirring in our blood, the love of country, of each spine of cactus and each particle of mist? Shall we be thankless for the way we walk, fearlessly not stealing glances backward? For the way we talk, for scorn and laughter and the clenching of the fist, 
come. Come, Americans, come now and praise the broken bread together and the fiddle and the tilling of the land. The bellboy by the shoals and Joe, the wild boy, getting married to Louise. Praise now October and the song of songs together. Praise the men who never shall forget. The steel mills working through the night. The rifle factory, the weapon in the hand. Arise now and give thanks where thanks are due. 28 days later, Pearl Harbor and Manila were attacked, plunging the U.S. into World War II. Mary, no! God, let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. States entered into World War II. We had an interesting, unforgettable summer. President Roosevelt's New Deal had mostly stalled out. Unemployment was still hovering around 15%, and people wanted to escape from the problems facing them. In baseball, Ted Williams hit 406 for the Boston Red Sox. Joe DiMaggio hit safely in 56 consecutive games for the Yankees. The Brooklyn Dodgers won the National League pennant for the first time since 1920. Bob Hope had his first USO performance at California's March Field. Walt Disney's pictures released Dumbo. The popularity of the first season of Forecast encouraged CBS to bring it back. Season 2 premiered on July 14, 1941, with a 60-minute play from Hollywood starring Marlene Dietrich. It was called The Arabian Nights and directed by Charles Vanda. I have such tales to tell as no man yet has heard. Wondrous as life itself, magic as birth, beauteous as deathless love. Here then is worth. Such tales to tell indeed has Scheherazade. Tales from the world's greatest single treasure house of fiction. This evening, during the opening half hour, we shall bring before you as a dramatic prologue the extraordinary story of the great King Shariar and of how Scheherazade the Beautiful came to relate the tales of the Arabian Nights. Following this background of our proposed series, 
We shall present a complete half hour, typical of one you might hear during a representative week of actual commercial broadcasting. It is related that in Samarkand, in ancient days, there dwelt a certain king. Shariar was his name. Great his power. As numberless as trees upon a plain, his subject. His wealth as boundless as the sea. Yet was he king of nothing in his heart. Until the coming of Scheherazade. Let her name be spoken in whisper. Scheherazade. Let the magic of her name sing with the rivers. Scheherazade. Let the wonder of her name echo forth from mountaintop to farthest mountaintop. Scheherazade! It is my name they speak. I am Scheherazade. Yet there's little need for wonder or for lavish praise in my behalf. Being a woman, I have but lived as a woman must live. And living so, have loved. Loved well. This then was the beginning. The following week from New York, Kay Thompson starred in 51 East 51, an on-the-scene comedy at a fictitious upscale New York bar. Hello? Hello? I'd like to send a telegram, please, to the radio audience. Dear radio audience, there's a table reserved for you tonight at 51 East 51. Fun and everything and swizzle sticks. Love, Kay Thompson. Send that as a straight wire, will you? And, oh, charge it to CBS. Today, Kay Thompson is mostly remembered as the author of the Eloise children's book series, but at the time, she was also an actress and singer. All of her talents were on display in this pilot. Ladies and gentlemen, 51 East 51 is a new musical show with comedy and vice versa. 51 East 51 is also the approximate address of the newest, smartest, swankest supper club in the city. Almost anything is more than likely to happen there, and uh, usually does. Now, the entertainment menu reads as follows. At the time, Kay Thompson was single, but not for long. Her work as a musician, composer, actress, and writer helped her meet someone who had similar taste, Bill Spear. The two were married in 1942. Two weeks later, Spear produced and directed a forecast episode called Song Without End, starring Burgess Meredith and Margot, which was to be a biography program on various musicians and composers. Mr. Spear would like to tell you what this is all about. Nobody is born into the world hating good music. But because the word has gotten around that music is good for you and is a necessary part of your education, many of us have come up through the age of consent and well beyond it with a spinach-like connotation in our minds when words like symphony, concerto, tone poem, sonata, and the like are mentioned. Spinach, of course, does not taste any good at all, and you were right when you thought it didn't. But music does taste good, and it's too bad if anyone ever made you think it didn't. And good music itself... I was a music critic. Music is what I really uh, started out to be, and what I think I still know best 
although I've gotten away with, excuse the expression, murder. But in 1929, my brother, who was very much older than I, was copy chief at Batten, Barton, Durston, and Osborne, the great advertising agency in New York. The agency had just signed up. These were the very new days, please remember, of radio. It was a very, very new medium. But in those days, BBDNO, to shorten it, had inveigled the Metropolitan Opera Company into signing up an exclusive contract with the agency to use its artists. Roy Durston, the vice president of the agency, was having lunch with my brother and said that he had now done this great thing, but now he was suddenly confronted by the problem of making programs that would fit into an hour and uh, that he, nobody could understand, uh, nobody knew enough about the opera lingo and how long was Una Furtiva Lagrima from L'Elisa d'Amore what was this thing from, uh, was that a fast or a slow one from Rigoletto? <laughs> and uh, Tristan and Isolde was probably too heavy. And he needed somebody to arrange programs with the conductors and with the singers and with the artists. And my brother said, well, my kid brother, meaning me, Bill, who was a music critic at Musical America magazine, getting, I think I was up to $32.50 a week, uh, you know, which was high living in 1929, said he knows everything about music, and maybe he'd be your man. So we had lunch, and anyway, I got lured into radio and never to quit until I came east some years ago. Ludwig von Beethoven, 1770-1827, standing colossus-like at the gateways between the old music and the new, tearing the symphony to pieces and remaking it in his own image. A man who could shake his fist at the destiny which robbed him of the power to know his own music. Radio was great training. I don't know where the kids today are going to get anything equal it. Because I came too late for stock companies in vaudeville, so radio was our mm -hmm. break-in. Mm -hmm. And practically all the good actors out here now, of my age, cut their teeth in radio. Because yes. you'd have to do dialects, ages, you know, and you had to create a picture with just your voice. In a lot of ways, radio was a lot funnier. You could be funnier on radio than you could mm -hmm. on television. Jack Benny mm -hmm. never was as funny on television as he was on radio. Forecast number seven, broadcast from New York on August 11, 1941, was called The Class of 41. It was a review of newcomers to showbiz, with young performers writing their own material, including Jim Backus, who later go on to voice Mr. Magoo, play Thurston Howell III on Gilligan's Island, and stars Frank Stark, James Dean's father, in Rebel Without a Cause. <clears throat> Hello! You probably still never met us, but we're still the class of 41. Hello! Well, now you've met us. We're not going to sell you magazines or books or a vacuum cleaner. We won't enlarge your brain or make your wallet any leaner. We're not going to sell you hosiery. And we're sure none of us mantle. Plaster you with life insurance for when you're slightly settled. All we're going to sell is us. I'm Hav at 41. We went to Vassar. I'm an Aggie from Oklahoma. I just crawled out of a mine shaft. I ain't got no diploma. We were... Slacks, shorts, and dungarees, sweaters and skirts above our knees, overalls, hombards, sailor suits, scaffrelli gowns, and cowboy boots. We like... Ice cream, pastrami, Betty Grable, Schopenhauer. And actually, Magoo, we used to have to do what was called a double in those days. Uh, you, you played your straight voice, and then to, if you wanted to get hired, you, to, for them to save money, you'd do another voice. Mm -hmm. 
as far away from your own voice as possible as you possibly could. Well, I developed a voice. He was a sheriff. He was a farmer. He was, but I was essentially Magoo, and that's where mm -hmm. I, I I I developed him. I I did about five years on Edgar Bergen's show. I played a pompous guy that he would run into. Like many radio actors and actresses, Jim Backus specialized in different voices. His farmer drawl later became Mr. Magoo, and before he was Thurston Howell III, he created that voice for radio like his guest appearance on this Richard Diamond Private Detective episode entitled The Blue Surge Suit, originally broadcast on ABC on February 9th, 1951. Oh, come in, come in. Oh, uh, what's happened? Oh, if this keeps up, I may be living on dream pills. I've been eating them like peanuts. Well, maybe if you gave me a hint. I, I have been robbed. Well, didn't we go through this thing in here, my... Here, here, I've been robbed here in my apartment. What? I came home, took a bath, went in to get dressed, opened my wardrobe, and to my complete horror, found three... My only three blue serge suits were missing. Oh, no. A potent reaction. Oh, no. Now, why didn't I think of that? I can't imagine. It's certainly simple enough. We'll spend a whole day insulting each other after you solve this mystery. So for now, strain yourself and try looking like a detective with a $100 retainer in his pocket. And although Class of 1941 wasn't picked up for regular broadcast, the concept of an ensemble cast of young talent was used These again. It sounded very much like a musical number one might hear at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Or, for instance, The Stars of Tomorrow, introduced by Bob Hope and Lucille Ball at the 61st Oscars on March 29, 1989, less than one month before Miss Ball's death. You're telling me, in, my, in another life, I was Shirley MacLaine. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, we, here we are with 19 triple threaders. Make a note of their name now. You're going to be hearing a lot from these kids. Ladies and gentlemen, the Oscar winners of tomorrow in a number especially written for this year's show by Marvin Hamlish and Fred Ebb and choreographed by Kenny Ortega. seems that whether 1941, 1989, or 2018, the stars of tomorrow are always in vogue, even if they're not quite ready for primetime. Look out there. Hello, Hoppy. What's up? Russell is an eagle pass. Hop along, Cassidy. Everywhere in the West, that name is feared by lawbreakers. Hurry up, you bird. Change them brands and let's get this herd hey, moving. boss, who's that coming? Holy smoke! Get moving! Every man for himself! Let's have one catch The bottom half of the hour featured the radio debut of Hopalong Cassidy. This episode starred Lou Merrill and Gerald Moore. It was an early attempt at an adult-themed Western, 11 years before Gunsmoke would come to the CBS airwaves. This episode did not star William Boyd, who played Cassidy in the 1930s B-movies. It would take another 10 years before the show would come to the radio airwaves, after more films starring Boyd, and a TV debut on NBC in June of 1949. CBS would finally get Boyd as Hopalong on Saturday, September 30th, 1950, as a primetime kids' show, airing at 8.30 p.m. for General Foods. In these early days of the West, the common way to travel is by stagecoach. It's generally a long, hot trip with no excitement, unless a hold-up man decides to stop the stage and liven things up by robbing the strong box and the passengers. Well, in our story today, driver Corrigan of the Ridge City Bound stage has just looked down the barrel of a six-gun 
as the stage was relieved of the mine payroll. When the gunman departed, Corrigan whipped up his horses and raced the remaining two miles into Ridge City. Perhaps the most experimental of all the forecast broadcasts was the August 18, 1941 episode called The Country Lawyer. Experimental because the story was told in several tenses and told as a story within a story that also combines a faux making-of version of forecast. The story was written as a memoir by Bellamy Partridge about his father, country lawyer Samuel Selden Partridge, in the little town of Phelps, New York, in which Samuel came to practice law during the 1880s. Let's have order in the court, please. You may proceed with the case. Thank you, Your Honor. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've heard a vast amount of testimony on behalf of my client, Samuel Selden Partridge, referred to in this case as the country lawyer. You've heard many witnesses give many reasons why your verdict should be most favorable. I have but 60 minutes, one hour, to present our case. To sum up those things you must know before arriving at your verdict. Let me begin by asking you to recall the testimony of the publisher's representative, who but a short time ago from this stand spoke of the sale to publish Country Lawyer. Its first edition appeared on the bookstand June 6, 1939. A second and third edition followed in but five weeks. Before three months had passed, it had been necessary to order its seventh edition. Well, that was an excellent record. What happened then? Did sales drop off? Absolutely not. By the end of the year, Country Lawyer had passed 11 editions and had consistently been the bestseller of all nonfiction books. It had been a countrywide bestseller in 1939. In 1940, Partridge and his family moved out to California when Country Lawyer was picked up by one of the studios. He was given a six-month contract to adapt it for the screen. When that didn't happen in time, it became a pilot for a potential CBS series. This episode was written for forecast by Harold Medford. Hollywood actor Raymond Massey was the narrator. In this episode, an eccentric old-timer is accused of being a firebug. The supporting cast included Edgar Barrier, B. Benaderet, Arthur Q. Bryan, Barry Kroger, Grace Leonard, Knox Manning, and Edward Max. It was, it was produced and directed by Charles Vanda. What's going on? Just going through the script, Al, seeing what equipment we need. No, no, I mean that effect. What in the world is it? Old ocean. Old ocean? You don't mean the ocean. No, that's what they call their firefighting water pump. It was mounted on a wagon, sort of. Only one thing bothers me. How do you make a sound like a tandem bike? Wilbur Hatch, CBS conductor, studied the music content of the script, began his rehearsal. Let's try a second cue now, the one that comes in under Massey's narration. All right. Oh, that sounds more like Boogie Woogie than an 1885 house set. Come on now, put a nice pair of button shoes on. Okay, once more. All right, that's more like it. There were, as you learned, further conferences on how best to present the sample half-hour drama to forecast listeners. And it was in the program... You know what I think? I think the listeners would get a kick out of how... Yes, God's children laughed again and danced again. And sometimes they cried. And once again, out of their tears came music. Forecast closed its doors forever after the September 1st, 1941 episode called Jubilee. This hour-long episode was an all-African-American musical variety review, starring Duke Ellington, Wonderful Smith, and Ethel Waters. 
Also in the musical cast were Hamtree Harrington, Flournoy E. Miller, the Hall Johnson Choir, and the Juanita Hall Choir. It originated both from New York and Hollywood, although incredibly socially dated today, it was seen as groundbreaking at the time. Sensual. The blues. A sobbing trumpet, a wailing trombone, a piercing clarinet. The blues. A cry from another century from a people in bondage. Softly, urgently, unforgettably, the blues insinuated themselves. Beginning in 1942, it was picked up for production by the Armed Forces Radio Service, a broadcast for African-American GIs fighting in Europe and Japan. W.B. Lewis, CBS Vice President in Charge of Broadcasts, was production chief of the forecast series with Charles Vanda, Western Program Director, and William Spear, Head of Columbia Script Division, as associate producers. You're going to be right at the same spot on the dial next Monday when forecast time again becomes Lux Radio Theater Time, returning to the air with Ginger Rogers as its first star. Don't miss hearing Ginger Rogers with Burgess Meredith, George Murphy, and Alan Marshall in that delightful, delicious, delirious, romantic screen comedy, Tom, Dick, and Harry. Same time forecast started tonight over the great majority of these same stations. Next Monday, 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Saving Time. Don't forget, Forecast is forecasting another big season for its friend, the Lux Radio Theater, starting next Monday. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. You look like a king. Sam of Sam's Super Shoe Shine Stand is here to brush your shoes. All right, Sam. Sam, watch out for the buttons. Next, the president of the Busy Bee Hat Cleaners is here to block your hat. Take the king's hat, Mr. Bumble. And change the newspaper in the hat band. Your suit is a little baggy, king. Boys, take his majesty's coat off. On our stage, we have a Hoffman pressing machine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. An expert operating the Hoffman pressing machine will press your trousers. Now, wait a minute. For 15 years, I've been waiting to catch you like Alan, this. you haven't seen the end of me. It won't be long now. I want my pay. Catch a falling star. Next time on Breaking Walls, we spotlight John Florence Sullivan, one of the most forward-thinking, popular, well-read comedians of the first half of the 20th century. He fought with NBC executives, battled hypertension, had a long-running feud with Jack Benny, drew high praise from Franklin D. Roosevelt, William Faulkner, John Steinbeck, and ultimately heavily influenced fellow comedians like Groucho Marx, Stan Freeberg, and Johnny Carson. John Florence Sullivan was professionally known as Fred Allen. And although 
His final autobiography was titled Much Ado About Me. He understood that good comedy was anything but. The reading material used in today's episode was The Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning and Forecast Is There a Sponsor in the House by Martin Grahams Jr. Featured in today's episode were interviews with Bill Spear and Mel Allen for Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran's WTIC Golden Age of Radio program, whose episodes can be found at goldenage-wtic.org. Elliot Lewis and Byron Kane were with the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy, which can be found at spurback.com. And Jim Backus and Norman Corwin were with Chuck Shaden, whose interviews can be streamed for free at speakingofradio.com. Selected music featured in today's episode was My Blue Heaven by Glenn Miller, Begin the Begin and Stardust by Artie Shaw, Al Koba Azul by Elliot Goldendahl, The Battle Cry for Freedom by Jacqueline Schwab for the Civil War by Ken Burns, and Catch a Falling Star by Perry Como. I'd like to especially thank Larry and John Gassman as well as Walden Hughes for their tremendous help with this episode. I was recently on their radio program, which can be found at yesterdayusa.com. Larry is the president of SpurVac, John's vice president, and Walden is activities chair, and they're having their next convention this coming November 1st through 3rd at the Crown Plaza Hotel at 3131 Bristol Street in Costa Mesa, California. For more upcoming information, please go to SpurVac.com. I'd also like to thank our sponsors for this episode, the Fireside Mystery Theater and 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Both podcasts can be easily found on iTunes and basically everywhere that you'll listen to a podcast. I'd also like to thank the folks at the Front Porch People, whose network of podcasts can be found at thefrontporchpeople.com. Breaking Walls, episode number 81, will be available beginning July 1st, 2018. In the meantime, expect two new episodes, numbers 3 and 4, of A Man Named Marlowe to be available beginning June 12th and June 26th, 2018. Both shows are available in the same feed and can be subscribed to by searching for Breaking Walls everywhere you get your podcasts or at thewallbreakers.com. And if you've been enjoying these episodes, do me the favor of giving a quick iTunes rating and review to the show. It'll help more people find us. And if you've got some spare change lying around in these lint pocket times, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. I've been posting soundscapes from Breaking Walls and Marlowe episodes and will continue to upload new clips and other goodies that aren't available in the normal Breaking Walls feed. So, until June 12th for A Man Named Marlowe, and until July 1st for Breaking Walls. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 80. So catch a falling star, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much, and happy June. And they just might. It's easy to forget them without trying. With just a pocket full of starlight, catch a falling star and put it in your pocket. Never let it fade away. Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket. Save it for a rainy day. Save it for a rainy day. Save it for a rainy day.